It's fun to hear all the discussion and just being being church family. I love it, and um, it's it's good to be together today. Welcome to those that are watching online and to those that are in the gym. It's um, even though we're separated out a little bit, it's good that we are able to worship together and to study God's word together. Um, last week we jumped ahead in Titus a little bit to a section we wanted to use for Easter about the gospel, and today we're going to jump back and finish Titus chapter two as we continue our, our efforts through this book. I wanted to show a picture that, that captivated us a few weeks ago in the news. I don't know if you saw something like this. This is the Ever Given is the name of the ship, and apparently that's not how you go through the Suez Canal. There are, that's a problematic way where the front end, uh, I know that's not what you call a boat. Um, what is it? The, the bow, thank you. Okay. The, the bow got caught on the right side of the canal and the, the aft, stern, whatever it is in the back, um, swung around to the back, hit both sides, grounded itself, and it was stuck. Uh, remember this? Another picture here, that, that's, the, that's a good picture. This just shows you how immense this ship is. Um, it is as, as long as the Empire State Building is tall. And so this was a significant situation. It took almost a week to get unstuck. They're still trying to figure out what happened. And, and it's really interesting. I'm going to guess a little bit this morning as we start. Um, because there were several factors that seemed to contribute to it. One was there were high winds. 35 mile an hour winds, sandstorm, and um, that, especially when you get that many shipping containers, those act like a giant sail, and they just catch the wind, and that appears to have started pushing the ship. Um, however, what, what happened then, and I, last night I watched actually a, um, a simulation of what happened using the telemetry off the ship and where it was, and actually it, the problem started long before this. As the pilot started fighting the wind, he started overcompensating. And all of a sudden you see the ship go almost to the left and then almost to the white right and almost to the left and then, and then finally too far to the right and got stuck and just wedged in there, jammed in there. And so the best guess right now is yes, the wind might have been part of it, but a number of other ships the same size traversed that just fine that day. But it looks as if the pilot was unprepared for what would happen in those circumstances. And, and, and isn't that the case where you can have a lot of training and, and he might have been in class and he might have studied what to do when there's winds like this and what to do when this happens. But until you're actually in it, man, there's nothing like, there's nothing like on the job training. And we can have book knowledge, but to put it into practice can be a challenge. Same is true of our lives. We can be, we can have all kinds of ideas of how we should live for God and how we should live godly lives. But then, man, when that person cuts us off in the freeway or, or someone says those angry words to us or someone lies about us or whatever it is, the, the, the tendency is to forget what we should be and just act naturally. And when we act naturally, that's a problem. Because our natural person, our natural man, our natural woman is a sinful state. And so somehow we have to be able to live for God and, and apply godly principles to our lives and have the instruction of how to do that that we can put into practice and we can actually follow, unlike the ever given in the Suez Canal, which had its issues. Earlier in chapter 2 in Titus, we talked a lot about, okay, training manual. What should this look like? What should it look like for, for life as a believer? And we looked at older men and older women and younger women and younger men, and we looked at employees, employers, or, or servants, and, and all of these instructions of how to live for God. And so you, you could read this list and it is daunting. How do we do this? How do we do all these things when the winds come, when the challenges come? Because that's when it's hardest. How do we actually put this into practice? And our, our natural tendency of our natural man is, well, I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. We're going to knock this out, pull myself up by my own bootstraps, which doesn't work. And we fail. But that isn't the Christianity that God calls us to. That isn't what following Jesus means. Following Jesus means He saves us and then He empowers us to live for Him. He is the one that trains us. He is the one that then enables us 
to live for Him and to do these things. It's not just try harder. It's understanding the depth of, of, of what God has done. Understanding the depth of His grace and letting Jesus work harder through us. That is the answer. So Paul isn't just calling us to a checklist uh, of things that we can never attain, but he's calling us to something higher, a life abiding in Christ, a life flooded by the grace of God as we let that grace change us. Because yeah, sometimes we have difficulty doing what we know we should. A lot of times, if we're honest, we have difficulty doing what we know we should. Then we feel guilty later, and then we don't try as hard, and it becomes this cycle of despair. But that is not what God intends. And the text today finishes chapter 2 by going to theology, by going to, okay, how do we do this? What is the foundation that allows us to live for God and lives these hard principles, these amazing principles for God, without just trying harder? And so we're going to look at grace today. We're going to look at the work of the cross and ask the question, how do those affect how we act? How do those inform living for Christ? See, the grace of God, the main point of the morning is the grace of God saves and trains us to live out our faith practically towards each other. The grace of God saves and trains us to live out our faith practically towards each other. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and we're going to explore this together. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under, I think every other seat has a black Bible in the rack underneath. Please feel free to pull that out. If you don't have one at home, we want you to take that home as our gift to you so you have a copy of God's Word. But Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15 today. And verse 11 starts with the word for, right? And whenever you see the word for as a beginning of a sentence in the Bible, it's connecting what has gone before with what is following. You could say because or in light of or something like that. But the for says, okay, everything before in chapter 2, now we're going to, to bring that thought to, okay, this is how you do that, for this happens. So this morning I actually want to start reading at verse 1. I want to read the first part of the four, all those things we studied several weeks ago. And then we're just going to keep reading to the end of the chapter and include our text for today. And then we'll break down our text for today and see how grace helps us do this. So starting at Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be subject, submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Four, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray before we dig into that last section. Lord God, I pray that your word would speak to us this morning. That your Holy Spirit would reveal the truth that you have for us here. Would convict us and challenge us, Lord, to be following what you have asked us to do. 
Lord, I pray that you would use your word powerfully in our hearts today. In your name, amen. So as we read chapter 2 and reminded ourselves of what we had studied, did you hear those lists and think, man, that's not possible? That's like, that's like being perfect. He's asking me to be perfect, and I'm not perfect. Well, that's really where I want to come to this section of 11 to 15 today. Okay, how does God help us do these things? How does God help us live for Him? And so like I said in verse 11, we started with four. For the grace of God has appeared. And so this is talking about, okay, what helps us do all of the discipleship, all of the discipling that happens before this? And just as a side note, what Paul is doing here, he started in verse 1 when he said, live in accord with sound doctrine. He is combining doctrine and practical living. Okay? And and he does this by, he mentions it in verse 1. Verses 1 through 10 are the practical living. Verses 11 through 15, he comes back to doctrine. And, And the reason he's doing that is because we cannot divorce the two. When we separate doctrine from right living, we have all kinds of problems that come up. If we just give practical advice and we never talk about doctrine and we never talk about theology and what is is happening behind the scenes and the truth of Scripture, what we're really doing is something we would call moralism. We're just giving sort of some good ideas for how to live life. Now, when, when the winds come, when the winds start to blow the ship to the side... What what good are good ideas? Oh, they might be good, but there's no foundation and the building crumbles. And so when we when we come to life with just moralisms, when we come to life with just this is what you should do, two things happen. Number one, we have a structure that doesn't stand the wind and the test of time. Number two, we often become very legalistic because we have no other choice but to follow these exact things and to condemn others that don't. And so we see that with the Pharisees. As they were trying to follow God and trying to follow the laws that God had given, but they had forgotten the meaning, the theology behind them, the truths of who God was. Now on the other side of it, not I wasn't picking on you guys over here. On the other side of it, you guys are the theology people because we have the word here on the wall. And so um, you're the people of the word. If we just teach theology and it never infiltrates into real life, what is that? It's hypocrisy, right? It's, it's head knowledge with no actions that come from it. And I would argue it's a head knowledge that isn't real knowledge because it never works its way out into our lives. And so and those people are hard to be around too because they, they know everything the Bible says, but you look at their lives and you're like, that's a mess. It's a mess. And so theology must always be paired with practical living. Something we talk a lot about at Bible college and at seminary, because you're so ingrained in theology, but if you never are in ministry and never have an outlet for that, it just messes with you. Because both are true. And God intended theology to be a foundation and, and something that oozes out of our real life and practical life. Now, I know in this room there's people that are, are just really keen on this is practical living and, and wisdom, and, and that's great. And we have others that are just, just so into theology. This is where the body of Christ works, is we appreciate each other, because those two inform each other. So right from the start, as we look at this section, this is a section of theology, but Paul is intending it to be the foundation for the practical living of 1 through 10. Don't separate the two, which is why I wanted to read the whole chapter again. Griffin, a theologian that was, was writing on Titus, said this, The ultimate goal of increasing our knowledge of God should be Christian lives characterized by growth in obedience to God's revealed will. That is the goal of knowledge, is to live a, a godly life. A life that is informed by that. And so we come to this section knowing that we're getting a foundation. And we're going to look at, okay, what is the role of God's grace? Because it starts with, for the grace of God has appeared. That's the topic of this paragraph. That is the controlling thought of this paragraph. The grace of God and what it does. And so we're going to look at three roles this morning that God's grace has in training us to live godly lives. Now, I know grace does a lot more than these three things, but we're going to look at this particular passage and say, 
what does this passage say about grace? And so he starts with what is a familiar theme in Paul's writings, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And the grace of God there is, is not only an understand, we, we, we not only need an understanding of grace to understand that, but of who to understand that, because Jesus Christ through the incarnation is the grace of God. And so God exhibited this grace by sending his son Jesus to live here on earth, to die and rise again on the third day. But the concept here of the grace of God is really fascinating to explore. Because we're going to find out, he says, that grace trains us. Grace teaches us. How does it do that? Now, to understand grace a little bit more, I also want to distinguish between grace and mercy. Okay, We we throw these terms out. My fear is we throw these terms out so often in church that we lose the impact. And that can easily happen. Grace is the idea of God's free favor to man. It's God giving us something we don't deserve or can't do for ourselves. And so grace would be giving a gift that someone has not earned in any way, a blessing that someone has not earned in any way. If I say, you know what, there's a new car out there in the parking lot for you. You haven't earned that in any way with me, right? Unless there's something I don't know about. We can talk about that. But um, you haven't earned that. That is an act of grace to give that to you. Mercy, on the other hand, is not giving someone what they do deserve. Mercy is Jesus not immediately putting death on us when we sin. Mercy is Jesus paying for that sin, which is it's both grace and mercy, but taking the penalty for that sin rather than applying the penalty to us. And so grace is God giving salvation, giving his righteousness. Mercy is not applying that punishment to us, not giving us what we deserve. So today we're going to talk about grace. For the grace of God has appeared, has shown itself through, like we said, the incarnation, through Jesus' life and work on the cross. And, and the idea of appeared is, is, is bursting out like the sun coming up in the morning. In fact, elsewhere, it's used of the sun rising and the sun suddenly shining on people. It's, it was sometimes used in writing of a hero breaking into a helpless situation to rescue someone from danger. I like that one. Uh, appearing a hero just saying, I'm here and bursting in and fixing the situation. Well, isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that why we're drawn to hero stories? And why we're drawn to MCU and some of the other things? We're looking for a hero to break in and rescue because that is what Jesus did. That's what we're wired to respond to. And so the grace of God has appeared. This is the first appearing when Jesus came. In verse 13, we'll talk about the second appearing. And where we're living now is between two appearings between Jesus' first coming and second coming, where we need to live for God in the middle of this fallen world. And so the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And we talked about that last week, where Jesus died on the cross to pay our sins and to offer us salvation if we will come to him. And so the first role that grace has is that grace rescues us. Grace I know you probably put saves us if you were thinking about it, but, but the idea here of the appearing is more of a rescue. Grace rescues us. And when it says salvation for all people, he is not saying, and we compare Scripture with Scripture, he is not saying that all people will be saved, but that salvation is available for all people. It is a genuine offer. The cross is a genuine offer of salvation for every individual. But we have to repent and give our lives to Jesus to have that applied to us. His death on the cross was for all, but applied to only those who believe. And so the first role and really his introductory sentence in this section, Jesus came the, the, and, and he represents the grace of God. He, he's an incarnation of the grace of God. And he brings an offer of salvation to all people. And and really, this is where we have to start if we're going to talk about right living, because the idea of salvation is what breaks the bondage of sin. It breaks the back of sin, and without salvation, it doesn't matter what we try on our own, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. 
I don't care how hard we try to live for God. I don't care how hard we try to live in a way that, that accords with the first ten verses and disciple others. If we aren't saved, you will fail. Because sin still has bondage over us. And so the first step has to be that grace rescues us. Now again, this is, this salvation is something that we don't deserve. We do nothing, nothing to earn it. But rather by the grace of God, He has offered salvation for the millions of people that are on this planet. Hundreds of millions. And that begins to help us understand the magnitude of God's grace. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still opposed to God, while we were still living in defiance of God, shaking our fists in His face, His grace broke through. And He rescued us. And so we start by seeing that grace brings salvation. Grace rescues us. And then we go on to to the next couple verses, which are sort of the center point of this little paragraph. Grace trains us. Grace trains us to live differently. The gift of grace should change how we live completely. It must change us if we genuinely experience it. In verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And he starts with the word training, and in some of your translation it might be translated teaches or instructs. It's all the same word, and it's the idea of of how you would train a child or a younger person of how to live. And so this training is a repetitive thing that forms proper habits of behavior. Okay, so muscle memory, but in our brains, uh, of how to act, how to react to certain situations. You know, we're, we're just finishing basketball season. One of my boys is just finishing. The other one is right in the middle of it. Why do you practice free throws over and over and over again. Muscle memory, right? You're trying to train yourself to where in a game and the thousands of people watching are screaming. Okay, the tens of people are, are screaming. <laughs> and, and they're waving things and trying to distract you. Your muscle memory hits in, hits in and you, you hit the shot. Or like the, the, the ever, ever given, when the winds come, you know what to do because you've been trained on how to do that. That is what this word has, the connotations of this word. It's actually a present participle, which means it goes on training. Not you were trained when you were saved, but that grace is still training you today. As you sit here, as you walk out of these doors, grace is somehow still training you of how to live. Another, another definition said the word for training there is to assist in making appropriate choices. I like that one a lot when it comes to grace. Because I think the grace of God helps us make right choices. Choices that are not natural. Our natural person, if, it, if we make choices based on what we would naturally do, oh, we're in a world of hurt, right? We'd make choices based on what I want to do, my desires. I really don't care about anyone else. I just want this, and so I'm going for it. That's our natural state. But grace here is training us, teaching us to be, to be different. We're being schooled by God's grace. It takes work. It takes thought. It takes effort. But praise God, he's done the work through his grace. You know, one author was talking about this idea that we, we sometimes justify actions by calling them natural. And, and I see this a lot in the world. Well, that's just natural. So it must be okay. Well, no, 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 no. No, that's horrible. And, and, and Scott Peck says this about that. He says, calling it natural does not mean it is essential or beneficial or unchangeable behavior. It's a cop-out. It's an excuse. It's also natural to mess in our pants and never brush our teeth. I'm like, okay, that's descriptive. <laughs> Yet we teach ourselves to do the unnatural until the unnatural itself becomes second nature. Indeed, all self-discipline might be defined as teaching ourselves to do the unnatural. There's a point to that. And so we need to come and say, okay, what am I doing just because it's natural, it's normal, my natural state? Rather, we need to change and say, what does the grace of God inform me to do? How does that train me 
to live differently. And so in verse, in verse 12 there, we see five different things that it trains us in. And really, we can break these down into two, the things we say no to and the things we say yes to, okay? So the things we renounce and the things that we embrace. And so we start by, it says we're to renounce the world. Grace teaches us to say no to this world. And we'll talk a little bit later about how it does this. But for now, Paul's just saying, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. A, a, renunciation, a renunciation of the past. A choice to disown, to disdain something. Another author wrote, it's a conscious, willful repudiation of thoughts, words, and actions that are opposed to true godliness. To, to put that just down in, in different words, it's a choice to say this isn't good and this isn't right. Anything that is contrary to God. And again, this is on an ongoing basis. So it's not something we do once, but this is something we do every moment of every day. Questions like, how am I doing at renouncing the world today? It's saying no to the world today. The thoughts and everything. And so he, he hits two things here. Ungodliness. And ungodliness is the idea of, of living life with complete apathy toward God. So godliness is living life in light of God in every moment. Ungodliness says, God? Who's God? I'm just going to live my life. And so we live life without thinking about God. We live life like there is no God. Some authors call that to be functional atheists. And, and we can so easily do that unless we're training ourselves throughout the week to say, how is God part of this? How is God part of this? How is God part of this? And from the text today saying, how does the grace God gave me help with this? How do, how do I show the grace God gave me in this area, in this meeting, in this, in this decision? And so we're to say no to ungodliness. To ungodly or sinful words and actions. Actions that don't accord with what we know from the Bible to be true. Maybe, maybe a question on this to, is to ask, how during the week is my life different from someone that doesn't know God? How during the week, now I'm assuming Sunday morning our life, so you're all here, not watching whatever's on TV this morning. But how is my life different during the week from those that don't know God? And if I can't come up with a list, I'm probably not living in light of God's grace. And that, that's a hard statement to say. But grace teaches us to say no to this world. Grace also teaches us to say no to worldly passions or worldly desires. It's, it's a saying no to desires for things, pleasures, and values that are derived from this present worldly system that is derived from the world around us, that is openly hostile to God. Now, now I want to clarify here and balance this. This isn't saying that we can't enjoy God's good gifts here. It's not saying that we should have an ascetic life where we give up everything and every form of enjoyment. No, the question is, is this from God or is this from the world? You know, God has given us so many things to enjoy here. He wants us to enjoy good food. A good steak. That pleases God when we enjoy what He's created. He wants us to enjoy good vacations and scenic things and seeing His creation. He wants us to enjoy healthy marriages and everything that, that involves. These are good gifts from God. That's not what the, Paul is talking about here. This is saying no to worldly passions or desire, the word is desires, literally, desires that come from the earth, the, living in this sinful world. Desires that are contrary to God. And so we, we, we start to ask some questions. Is this contrary to the Bible or leading towards something that is contrary to God's word? Then that's something that we renounce and we say no to. Um, is this desire a God-given desire? Or would I be ashamed if I was following this in front of him? Now, I can still remember when I was younger, living at home, a lot younger now, um, and there might be a TV show I'd like, and mom and dad would come in and say, yeah, I'll watch that with you. That was the worst thing ever. 
depending on the show, because all of a sudden I was seeing things in the show that I never saw before. I'm like, oh, no, no, I, it's not usually like this. Um, well, it probably is because I'm giving myself over to worldly passions and worldly desires. And so we have to start to distinguish between what is a God-given thing to enjoy and what is a desire that comes from this world system. And so this attacks how do we make decisions? How do we process our desires? How do we choose what to do or not to do? Because it can't be just on, I want this. It can't be just on, uh, this looks fun. It has to be on the truth of Scripture. And what does God want? I, I would say on this, as we say no to worldly passions as well, especially to our younger people, don't play with the world and try to get as close to the line as you can. That's not godliness. In fact, it's, it's the opposite of godliness. It's ungodliness. I, and I know in so many things, that it's like, okay, so what can I do and be okay? And that's the wrong question to ask. The question should be, what can I do to please God? What can I do to honor God? And how can I enjoy that? When we, when we try to get as close to the line as we can, it's like keeping a tiger as a pet in the house and hoping it never bites you. It's going to turn eventually. And it's going to devour you. Saying no to ungodliness and, and worldly passions also means that I, I'm, I'm going to be troubled when I see these things. Even if I see them on TV or in a movie or hear them in music, I'm going to be troubled at ungodliness because I'm that committed to disdaining it. The, the word here is to repudiate or disdain it. Grace instructs us to renounce and avoid sinful actions and thoughts. Actions and thoughts are both in these two things. To reject a godless, indulgent life. See, a distaste for the world and its passions, it's a supernatural result of understanding and experiencing God's grace. It's an effect of grace. And so grace trains us to say no to the world. Let her be there. Grace instructs us to be determined to live godly lives, to say yes to living godly lives. So, and in both this, and we're going to see it in verse 14, Paul writes about what we denounce, the negative, and then we move to the positive, what we should do. It's not just don't do this, but do this, to live self-controlled lives. And, and this is a, a right, be right-minded, be sensible. We talked about this three, four, five times already in chapter two, right? Be self-controlled, be self-controlled. To the young man, be self-controlled. And it's to, con- it's self-mastery, to control your sense of self and not let it control you. To keep your sense of self, gratification of self, and the importance of self under control. It's controlling your natural impulses. And village, when we understand God's grace and what He's done for us, the depth of what He's done for us, it starts to change our appetites. It starts to change our desires. Because how can I, how can I desire something that the God and Savior who gave his life for me despises? And that's where grace starts to instruct and train us. Second word there is upright. To live in conformity to God's standards, to do what God says to do. It's conduct that can't be condemned. And, and upright really has the idea of outward toward others. Living in a way that people say, that man, that woman is a Christian. They love God. And then the last one of the three, to live godly lives. And we've already talked about this a little bit because it's directly opposite of ungodly lives in the first part. But to be consciously living in the presence of God, practicing the presence of God. Every moment to say, how does God be part of this? Is this pleasing to God? It's asking, how does this action please God today? And, and, and we think about this and think about this in practical ways when we're in, interacting in our homes. How can I please my wife today? You know, how can I please my family today? These are good questions to ask. But we need to also ask, how can I please God today? And so we're not just to renounce ungodliness in the first part of this, but to embrace living godly lives, to be proactive in living godly lives. And he says, in this present age, in the now, 
in the dark world that, that we struggle with now. We're to be pursuing these things, and grace is training us now. And so these are conscious choices to say no, to say yes, but they're empowered by the motivating gift of God's grace. And think about it. Gifts affect us, right? If you get a great gift at Christmas time, what should your response be? <laughs> Woohoo! There should be, there should be gratitude, right? It, it should, it should help us understand the relationship between the giver and who's given it. Gifts affect us. Uh, you know, the, the absolute perfect anniversary gift. It does something to bond husband and wife together. I mean, not that it's dependent on that, but it's just one of those good things that help motivate that. In the same way, realizing that the gift of God's grace is the greatest gift we could ever have. It's amazing. So cherish the gift of salvation this week. Don't live life and ignore it. Even if you've been saved 40 years, cherish it this week anew. Realize God's grace anew that you still don't deserve it 40 years later. But God still loves you and God has still saved you. So what do we need to renounce in this verse? Say no to. What do we need to say yes to? Then in verse 13, grace trains us by giving us hope in Jesus' coming. Grace trains us by giving us hope in Jesus' coming. If you, you know, we, we have a lot of grace instructs us, grace saves us, grace hopeizes us. You know, if you let me make up a word, um, I don't have a word for instilling hope, but grace hopeizes us. It gives us hope because we know, because we're saved, because of the grace of salvation, we know we have a future. We know that future is secure and Jesus is coming back. If we die before he comes back, we know we're going to be immediately with him. This is a blessed hope. And so verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul here paints what we're looking forward to in grand, picturesque pictures. It's, it's this eager expectancy of the full impact of the glory of God, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he returns, there will be no doubt of his glory. There will be no doubt of his work. And so we're to look forward to that, waiting as this idea of eager expectancy. I know some of you are Disneyland buffs. And I know the end of this month can't come soon enough. Because I hear they're opening. And you can get in the queue for two years to get a ticket. Um, No, I, I don't know how long it's going to be. But that kind of eager expectancy, I'm already hearing some of you were were eagerly waiting for baseball season to return and to sit in the stands. Do we have that kind of eager expectancy for the coming of our Lord? He's coming back, village. Could be today. And he's going to make things right. And, And what is happening in this world will be taken care of because he's coming back. And it's a blessed hope, which again, I've talked about hope a lot. It's not a wishing and hoping. This is an expectancy of something that is certain. A, A knowledge that we have assurance he is coming back now, and so we have hope because of that. So let's get excited that he's coming back. He's coming back because of God's grace, by the way. He doesn't need to come back and take us to to a new heaven and new earth, take us to eternity with him. We don't deserve that. But that's part of the grace that he's given, praise God. And it's amazing. We should sing a song like Amazing Grace. Don't let the words of that song get by you. Grace is amazing. It still is. It's unfathomable. This is the I'm giving you a new house for Christmas gift. Actually, a lot better than that. One other side note, theology. This verse is is a key verse in, in... directly stating that Jesus is God. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The way that is constructed is God and Savior are both adjectives or or both descriptors of Jesus Christ. It's a direct statement that says Jesus is God. He's our Savior, but he's also God. And so the theology there is just rich. 
especially with some of the heresies that have happened over the years. Jesus is God. And so God's act of grace makes the second coming possible. It makes it hope-filled. Now, now this, is, this is also one of the ways grace instructs us, right? Because if Jesus can come back at any time, I want to be pleasing Him when He comes back. And so that is just a motivation for living all those things in 1 through 10. We don't want to get so caught up in our daily lives that we forget that our daily lives should be excited about getting caught up. Jesus is coming back. Maybe this week, write notes to yourself. Post-it notes. Put them several places saying, Jesus could come back today. Jesus could come back today. When we start to do that, we start to train our minds through grace, through that hope because of grace, to live for Him every moment. To live for Him every moment. Point number three in your notes. Grace enables us. Grace enables us. So grace saves us Grace instructs us, and grace enables us. And in verse 14, Paul comes back to talk about the example of Jesus and how grace begins to help us live for God. One of the questions I had as I kept studying this passage and meditating on this passage all week was, okay, it clearly says grace instructs us, but how does it do that? Grace doesn't come up here in a bodily form and say, okay, point number one, you need to do this. Point number two, how does grace instruct us? And I think we get insight into that in verse 14. Because we see that grace is enabling us, and actually verse 14 ends by saying, this is how we're passionate or zealous for good works. And so how does grace instruct us to live godly lives? And and there's four things this verse mentions, and they really break down into... um, Grace enables us or takes away our inability to do this through sin, and then grace motivates us. And so we see in this verse, the first statement is, who gave himself up for us, speaking of our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And so the first way grace instructs us to live godly lives is through sacrifice. We follow Christ's example of giving grace out of humble sacrifice. And so we, we see this, right? He gave himself up for us. It was his choice. We can say all we want about the well, the Romans crucified him. Make no mistake, Jesus chose to go to the cross. He gave himself to us. If he didn't want to go to the cross, and if he chose not to, in a moment, he could have ended that whole scenario. But it was his choice to continue with the plan, with God's plan, and go to the cross. And then it's for us. He did it out of grace, giving it for us to a people that don't deserve it. And so the first thing we see there is this incredible example of grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. And so we're to follow that example. We're to say, okay, if if Jesus can show us this much grace, might I be able to show this much to my neighbor? Might I be able to show this much to the person that is going to annoy me in the gym later? Or, or the coworker that I dread seeing tomorrow morning? And so Jesus showed this incredible grace through his act on the cross, through his example on the cross. And so that should motivate us to do the same. You know, we, we see this sometimes with the, the whole pay it forward thing where if you do something for someone else, maybe they'll do something for someone else, and there's commercials about this. And, you know, I've talked to people that work at, like, Starbucks or whatever, and that often happens, right? You pay for the car behind you, and then what do they often do? Pay for the car behind them, and it's a nightmare for cashiers. But but everyone in line feels better about themselves as they, they go on. But Because acts of, of sacrifice, acts of grace, giving something to others they don't deserve, generate more acts of grace. And so that, that is the first thing we see of how grace instructs us. We should be following God's example because we've been so impacted by God's example. If you deserve salvation, then this one isn't for you. But if you don't deserve salvation, you have been given more grace than you will ever experience in your life. And so our responsibility is to be a conduit of that onto others. And so then I can start to treat others in the way 1 through 10 says to treat others. 
I can start to be self-controlled and not just be about myself because grace here that Jesus showed was for others. Was looking out for others. But then we get to the very next sentence and, and I wanted to include this in the first point, but he, he has it as the next word. To redeem us from all unlawless or from all lawlessness. To redeem us from all lawlessness. And so grace instructs us not only through sacrifice, but through redemption. We are redeemed from all wickedness, from the negative things. And this ties into the negative things in verse 12 that he says to say no to of ungodliness and worldly desires. The point here is you're redeemed from that. You've been removed from that sphere of influence. You've been released and set free. In fact, the word redeemed was a word that was used when someone was bought out of slavery, redeemed from slavery and set free. And so this act of grace, the way it instructs us, is by taking away our bondage to sin. By taking away our inability. Quite frankly, I've already said it, but when we're in bondage to sin, you're in bondage to sin. You have no other choices. But grace instructs us by giving us other choices. By saying, you're no longer in bondage to sin. You're redeemed from all lawlessness. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Sin is paid for. We're redeemed from it. And, and as we understand the depth of our sin, we understand the depth of God's grace, and we understand the power of that redemption. And so realize when we're making choices, when we're saying, how does grace instruct us? It does us by giving us more options, by redeeming us and taking away that bondage to sin if we've repented and given our lives to Jesus Christ. Grace trains us, but it enables us. It's not our own work that does it. It's, it's the work of grace. That's how we can say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. See, to love ungodliness, to pursue, to, to, to pursue worldly desires, to not pursue a godly life, despises the sacrifice of Jesus. It despises points A and B. And so it removes our inability, but it also motivates us to want to please God. The next word used there is to purify for himself, a people for his own possession. So we're purified. This is going from the negative to the positive. The fact that we're purified is how grace helps us live godly lives, helps us choose to make godly choices. Village, if you've come to Christ, you are purified. You are clean. No matter what you feel, no matter the guilt you struggle with, you are clean. doesn't mean you won't sin, but that sin is paid for. We come and repent and we experience God's forgiveness. And the word here is to cleanse, to wash. And, and, and again, when we realize the, the weight of the gift of Jesus' righteousness, remember it's an exchange. Our sins were placed on him. His righteousness, which is perfect, was placed on us. That is the best gift ever. That, is, that should blow our minds. We're purified. And that then should make us want to live up to that. Feel the weight, not just of your sin, but of your righteousness that is undeserved. Oh, it's a blessed thing and a glorious thing. And that is grace teaching us, instructing us, okay, now live in light of that. Make choices in light of that. The last one there of that verse, purify for himself a people for his own possession. Identity. Grace instructs us by giving us a new identity. We are now his people. We are his own. We are adopted. We are accepted. We are loved. We are treasured and prized. And so knowing that God treasures us and prizes us, brings us into his family, that then becomes a motivation. This one speaks to motivation, that we want to please him. We want to do what he wants us to do. We want to be about the Father's business. Grace generates this in us because it makes us part of the family. And like I said, he then goes on, all of these things work together to make us zealous for good works. 
So that sort of summarizes 1 through 10 again. These two go together. Grace instructs us. Yes, it saves us, it instructs us, but it enables us. And the way it does that is through the sacrifice, the example of a sacrifice, through redeeming us from the evil, from purifying us to the good, to giving us a new identity that we are are Jesus' family. We are God's family. And so this is a call to live to please our Lord, who gave us immeasurable, undeserved grace. Don't be a grace glutton. Pass it on. Don't just say, yeah, I just want more of God's grace. Pass it on. That is how grace informs us. I'll end by just reading 15, which is how Paul concludes it by saying, make sure you hear these things. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so, village, I exhort you, live for God because of what he's done because of his grace. Every day this week, how will grace inform your decisions? A grace you don't deserve, but has been freely and generously given. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for giving us a foundation of truth that then supports the work of living for you. Lord, I pray that you would amaze us with the truth of your grace this week. That you would help us to meditate on these verses, reflect on them, and let your grace as we do that instruct us, school us with your grace this week, God. Every moment of every day to live for you. In your name, amen. Here's what I'd ask as you go. I know, I know we, we have to end. Read verses 11 to 15 every day this week. Is that a, that's not a big ask. I'm asking for 60 seconds of your time a day. <laughs> Read 11 through 15 every week, and that, or every day, and that will help us start to reflect on how grace impacts our lives. Thank you for worshiping together. Go with God.